0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Monica Medina-Munoz. Uh, she's a professor of biology at Penn State. Uh, she's also a principal investigator. We're going to talk about uh, ecology and evolution of marine organisms. So, Monica, thanks for coming.
2: Oh, thank you for the invitation.
1: Yeah. Um, so what are you studying in your lab? You have your own lab, you know, after your own namesake. What's the focus of the research there?
2: So we studied uh, several things, but uh, I guess the main thread is Symbiosis between cnidarian hosts. Cnidarians are animals, uh, marine animals, and their symbionts, microbial symbionts, both algal symbionts and bacterial symbionts, and the interactions between
1: them. What's
2: a cnidaria? Is it like a snail or something, or what is it? No, uh, cnidaria is a, it's a phylum of marine animals, some of the first animal phyla to evolve, and it contains jellyfish, coral, anemones, hydra.
1: Okay, okay, I can picture them now. Huh. so their are symbionts, uh, you know, these bacteria and everything. Are they symbionts that leave their, their body and hang out in the water around them and then go back in, you know, as in some squid with uh, bioluminescent bacteria, or are they inside them the whole time that they exist?
2: So there is one symbiosis in particular that is fairly well known, and that's between the cnidarian host and dinoflagellate algae. These are unicellular protists that are photosynthetic and they're endosymbiotic, so which means they live inside the host tissue and they capture sunlight and then they Translocate photosynthates into the animal host, and, and the host in return uh, confers protection and inorganic nutrients and, and and a place where they can do photosynthesis safely. So this is an important symbiosis that has been studied for for decades because it's the the essence of coral reefs. The interaction between these dinoflagellates and corals is what gives the coral the energy to build the skeleton that ultimately makes the coral reef three-dimensional structure where all the other creatures live. So that's a very well-known interaction and the dinoflagellates can be free living as well as endosymbiotic. The host on the other hand can live without the algal photosymbiont for a very long time and that's what is known as coral bleaching and climate change is having a severe impact on these symbiosis because when it gets too hot the symbiosis breaks down and then the algae leave the coral host and the host doesn't have enough energy to survive and more and more Corals for dying from that, so it is a facultative endosymbiosis from the symbiote perspective, but it's more of an obligate symbiosis from the host perspective.
1: so, well, so the- where where do they um, where do these dinoflagellates take up residence? Like literally in the cracks and crevices of of a coral, or like where do they go into the cells, in between the cells?
2: Yeah, in the inside cells, inside the tissue uh, of 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 the animal host. So they, they, they literally, they they literally cellular, go inside. Hmm. Inside, yeah. Cellular processes have to take place, like um, phagocytosis. They, the symbiont is engulfed into a vacuole, and then the vacuole is transported inside the cell. And then it forms uh, what is called as a symbiosome, which is a specific vacuole to contain the algae. And then the host does not di- digest the the algal cell, but it maintains it as an extra organelle.
1: And has this been observed to happen, like in a lab, in a dish, or they, when yeah. this has happened?
2: Well, it happens. So the symbiosis tends to be established early in the life cycle of a coral or a cnidarian. In the jellies, is also the case. Um, it's a little different. I can tell you about the jellyfish in a second, but in the coral... They have uh, they they have sexual reproduction through coral spawning. So they release all their gametes into the water column, and they fertilize while they're floating, and then they develop uh, floating in the water, and slowly they become a swimming larva, and then the larva starts to find a place to settle, and in these processes when they develop a mouth, and when they have a mouth, they can start. Eating stuff, and one of the things that they ingest is, is the is the dinoflagellate, and that's in the in the ontogeny of the host is that's when the symbiosis gets established. And then the rest of their life, they live within the coral host unless there is thermal stress, and then they leave.
1: So the uh, has anyone observed from the time that a dinoflagellate is eaten, the whole path it takes to get to its final resting place inside of a cell?
2: Yeah, there is. Um, this has been observed through microscopy, you know, uh, TEM and SEM images have uh, uh, a confocal imaging. There is a lot of high resolution microscopes that can you can follow the sequence of infection in, 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 in the early life stages of the
1: animal. Well, does it look like the um... The cells, you know, the host cells, uh, are they actively going out and trying? Are they treating it as an infection or are they deliberately engulfing them? And I mean, does it look like an immune response, this, this endosymbiosis? or so what does yeah. it look like?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. To some extent, with gene expression analysis, we did some of that early on in the microarray era. And the, the microarray technology didn't have the resolution that now. Things like RNA seq have so when you look at gene expression through transcriptome analysis, people are detecting some sort of immune response of, of recognition of of um, of cellular recognition of the of the algal symbiont.
1: Oh, but okay, so it looks like there is recognition, and therefore it's a it's a phagocytosis or it's like an endocytosis. Is there... Yeah,
2: it's like a phagocytosis. Uh uh-huh. huh. Hmm.
1: Okay, so is, what's, what's doing the phagocytosing? Is it like immune cells from the, the area that are doing it, or other kinds the, of cells?
2: In the gastrodermal cell, in the gastrodermis, there is, well, they are engulfing the particles, you know, that they eat, so initially, they're just, they're not, I don't think they're actively seeking out, like the larva is not chasing after the photosymbionts. They, they kind of bump into them and then they engulf them and then they, they, the winnowing process kind of takes place where where they trigger this recognition cascade and they, they have preferences. Now, there's many species of algae that they can engulf early on and this is also, we've observed this in corals and we've also observed it in jellyfish. The jellyfish actually uptake them, not during the larval stage, but during the polyp stage. So that's a little different. But it's also when they have a mouth that they start taking them up. And then they don't take up all species of dinoflagellates. They're all, they're, these photosymbionts are within a family called this symbiogenaceae. They used to be a single genus. And now they're multiple genera within a family because the diversity was so large um, that it was necessary to do these taxonomic splitting into multiple genera. So now we understand a little better because now we know there are many, many different species and there is pairs that have co-evolved, but the babies have a lot more tolerance for uptake of different species. Some of them they flat out reject and they never take them up. And some of them they take up until a better one comes along. So people have looked at sort of the the photosymbion diversity over different stages of development, and you see that in the early months of, of a colony formation after larval settlement in corals, or even in 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 jellies. In, in the jellyfish, the infection triggers a developmental cascade. So the jelly metamorph the the Polyp metamorphoses into a baby medusa called a phyra. So this uh, process can be triggered, but there is already a disconnect if it's not the right one. So there is very specific uh, recognition mechanisms. What they are in terms of each species recognition is poorly known or not known really, because we are only starting to examine multiple. Host algal combinations, and uh, in corals and in other cnidarian species. But uh, we know that there is
1: specificity. Do these dinoflagellates stay inside the cells forever through the life of the organism, and are they passed down? Do they ever come out of the cells, you know, or, or uh, they just stick with the cell until both die together?
2: I think it's, it's a range of options. It depends on the on their host species that they that that they have some species are spawners so that means i described them before they release the gametes into the water column and the gametes are not infected so every generation they have to acquire the algae from the water column but there are species of i think I, at least i reported one or two where the egg is seeded with the symbiont so The mom, the mother colony passes its photosymbiont to its eggs, and the eggs are fertilized already with the right symbiont. So there is a that's why there is a lot of specificity. In other cases, the gametes are not infected with the symbiont, but the mucus surrounded the gamete bundle contains symbiont. So they are seeded also with with the parent colonies. A, a specific algal species very quickly.
1: In a given nadaria, I mean, they experience cell der- cell death and cell turnover, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, and there is the host controls um, algal cell division inside its cells. There is control of the of the mitotic division inside a host cell. So it's not like they proliferate uncontrollably. There is regulation of the of the algal in cell cycle the cell division by, by the
1: host. And well like what what percentage of um, of cells, I don't even know if you can tell, but what percentage of constituent cells take up the dinoflagellate? And then when one of those dies, um, well I guess they'd all be they'd all be filled with the dinoflagellates. Or is there a turnover?
2: Yeah, they can shed they can they can exocytose and they can shed. There is evidence of that, and there's reviews on this and how they can control the, like in bleaching. The if there is a mild uh, thermal stress, there is things that the algae can do in terms of controlling uh, the interaction. They they reduce. They can control the pigment and how much pigment they make whereas the host can control how many cells it harbors. So there is, even throughout the year, there is variation in an animal of how much uh, chlorophyll there is inside its tissues and how many algal cells there are. If there is thermal stress, then that is they start to adjust. Both of them try to coordinate these adjustments so that they can continue to work effectively until they reach a point where the the physiological demands of each are not any longer in sync, and then they have to split up. So the algae uh, decides to leave or the host decides to spell it, and then sometimes there is, if it's too dramatic, there is actually tissue sloughing and tissue necrosis so that they can get rid of big portions of of the colony to get rid of the algal cells so there is all different uh, kind of uh, physiological processes take place not only cellular to address with with to keep a balance or to control the abundance of algal cells within the host tissue
0: If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes
1: Has anyone looked at the um the dinoflagellates themselves in the free living stage and looked at their genes and their metabolome and then looked at them once they're captive inside of a, a host cell and looked for the differences and same with the host cell looking at the gene expression changes with the endocytosis um, sorry with you know uh, endosymbiosis of the, the dinoflagellate or not.
2: Yeah I think you know we as a community first started looking at a gene expression but now there is more Multiomic um, approaches, especially metabolomic approaches, um, to look at this. They're kind of in their infancy, but more and more groups are introducing these. It's hard to work with with coral larvae because they, you only get them usually once a year. So there are people trying to develop other model systems. Like in my lab, we, we study these jellyfish because we can we can infect it whenever we want with whatever symbionts we want. People are also looking at um, anemones that can be, can live with and without symbionts and then look at the processes of acquisition and breakdown of the symbiosis in a more controlled lab setting, which you can't necessarily do with coral larvae because you only get one shot a year and that really restricts what you can do. So yeah, people are definitely examining this these interaction from a gnomics perspective in, more in depth.
1: Okay. Well, what do you think is gonna be important about figuring out the relationship between the you know, these endosymbionts and the nodario? Like, what are you looking to, to to look at? The effects of climate change and how to maybe like, repatriate these dinoflagellates in corals or like, what's your aim?
2: Well, there's a lot of interest in the scientific community to try to find uh, traits that confer resilience to corals. Uh, We're we're far away from the reef, so it's hard for us to do that, right? Uh, But we are, so we're trying to use uh, a more kind of basic science approach to understand this, and that's why we switched to these. we haven't completely switched, but we are uh, developing this jellyfish model because we're interested in in how the symbiosis impacts development, Uh, because in corals, we know that when when the coral larvae acquire the photosymbiont, there is a lot of developmental processes taking place. They go from a swimming stage to a sessile stage. They become the calcifiers that start to deposit skeleton, and that is all linked to the symbiosis. So by trying to to have a model system like a like a lab rat we're hoping to be able to zoom into processes that we can't in the lab and try to understand also uh, the breakdown of the symbiosis which we can do in the jelly so so i guess our contribution to that is this in developing this model system and understanding better things that can be addressed with with coral larvae, and I guess I can tell you a little bit more about the microbiome stuff. Microbes have been linked to potentially bleaching, to disease, to different stressors, anthropogenic stressors, so we've gone into looking at microbiome composition across different reefs, across different species, and across developmental stages, and see how microbial communities are being impacted by all these different physiological, developmental, and, and biogeographic uh, conditions. And, and that's more of a um, kind of experimental, coral experimental field-based uh, approach that it's also providing insight into whether there is a microbial symbionts that are also as important as the algae. And the microbial community is a lot more complex and less studied than the algal photosymbionts, so it's going to take time. But we are getting some interesting observations from that.
1: Okay. Have you observed, uh, you know, bleached coral like in situ? Have you gone and been able to sample it and look at it structurally, and you know, to gain some insight on, you know, what a healthy coral looks like versus a bleached one, like in person?
2: Yeah, yeah. I've seen it in the fields, you know, when I had scheduled field trips to collect for actually corresponding. Corresponding in the Caribbean, which is where I've done most of my work, takes place at the end of summer because it's linked to lunar cycles and temperature. So it's warmer and and that's when they do it. So that's when it gets hotter and some years it's been pretty bad. So I was in in Panama and Florida for the 2005 leaching event. That was pretty bad. We didn't sample to look at things structurally, but let me think. One year we were looking at um, biomerization in corals. This is a different project. And I had a student looking at the skeletal matrix of um, of, of samples that we collected from a coral hatchery and from field expeditions. And we had some bleach samples and we had some sick samples. And he looked at the skeleton, not at the tissue, which is what most people tend to look at because uh, that's where the live organism is. And we found major differences, even in the skeletal matrix, uh, which is to get, that's why I remember this, because you asked about structural changes. So I don't know if there are structural changes that are visible, but there are definitely some structural changes because the, the proteins that make up the skeletal matrix were clearly different in these samples that were sick and bleached. Mm, interesting. I think it would be worth while looking at ultra structural differences. You know, with the naked eye, I don't think you can see anything structurally that you can tell between a, a bleached and a, and, a, and a normal coral, healthy coral. All you see is the paling of the tissue, which can be transient, right? If it's not too severe, the algae will grow back up, and then the tissue will look normal again. But if it's persistent, then maybe something is is, is affecting, and I suspect it is, because the coral doesn't have the energy to deposit the skeleton that it normally does. So it must be making less skeleton, but these are scales, temporal scales, that are relatively short right so you need to be able to look at ultrastructure i would think not something that you can look at with the naked eye or even with a regular microscope does that make sense
1: yeah okay um what about uh are you looking at any of the phages that would affect you know the dinoflagellates and affect the coral or the nudaria and then you know what happens to them once there's an endosymbiosis
2: no, but there are people actively looking at that, and I can give you names of people to interview because that's really interesting. There is, there, is, there didn't used to be, but there are more people looking at that now. So yeah, i can't it's like, tell level, you very levels. Much. well, it's okay. No,
1: I know there's levels upon levels of complexity, and no one scientist can even begin to look at it all. So that's why I figured it is. Yeah. Well, very good. Yeah. Okay. Monica, uh, what, what's the best way for people to um, to find out more about your work?
2: They can go to my website or look me up on Twitter. My lab, my lab website is medinalab.org and my Twitter handle is M.O. Medina Munoz. Okay. Well, very good.
1: Well, Monica, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it.
2: Okay. Thank you for the invitation.
0: If you like this podcast,